0: Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up will mean a great deal to us and will help us reach more people. Our goal is to allow the wisdom, honesty, and encouragement found in the life and writings of Henry Nowen to speak to a world hungry for meaning. Now, let me introduce you to my friend, Paul Pinkowski. Paul is one of the most creative and interesting thinkers that I know. He's a deeply spiritual man who's been especially inspired by the works of Thomas Merton. Paul and his church, the Church of the Redeemer here in Toronto, was instrumental in partnering with the Henry Nowen Society and with Father Bob Holmes of the Basilian Centre for Peace and Justice to create our first Voices for Peace conference. I want you to listen in on my conversation with Paul and learn why Voices for Peace is such a special annual event for us. Paul, tell me a little bit about your background and why this became an issue that's important to you.
1: I think, Karen, that um, peacemaking has been something that I had always thought about. Uh, Nonviolence, Jesus preaching peace, uh, being against war, not being able to understand the logic of war. But it was one of those things that I'd always thought about but never done anything about. But I think that as our circumstances change or sometimes we're confronted with something, it makes us rethink or makes us have to act on something. And in my case, it was uh, there were two things. The, the major one was the birth of my granddaughter. Morgan Rose. Uh, we went, uh, we got the call that my daughter was in labor. We rushed up to the hospital. We spent time there until she had a C-section to deliver the baby. She was, Morgan was very large, 11 pounds. And um, I held her in my arms and had that immediate rush of love and memory of holding Christine, my daughter, in my arms. And it was, it felt absolutely wonderful, euphoric and We got in the car to drive back home, and I found myself admitting to myself for the first time that my daughter, my granddaughter, was an indigenous child and that she was going to grow up on a First Nations reservation and that we had had some 1,800 women and girls who were indigenous go missing in Canada over the last 25 years. And I didn't like the feeling of that. And at the same time, and I don't know why it came back into my mind, at the same time I was musing on this and admitting this to myself, I started thinking about an interview that Shad Kabango had with uh, Jason Hamaker, a punk rock drummer, on the CBC radio. And Jason was talking about doing a recording in Syria and talked about being in Aleppo at a beautiful monastery and doing a recording there and then left and started to get calls from people he'd made friends with there talking about Aleppo being bombed. And the artist uh, who was doing the album art was talking about guns and bombs going off right in front of the house while they were on the phone. And then I saw pictures of Aleppo and I just thought how awful this was. And those two things sort of made me ask what kind of a world is my granddaughter going to inherit or is she going to inherit a world at all? And from there, I went to, well, what can I possibly do? I'm just a single voice.
0: I'm glad you decided you'd do something. I think that was kind of interesting. I mean, you, you obviously began to explore. There are different kinds of thinkers that have influenced you. Tell me, what at that moment, where did you turn for resources? Was it the Bible? Was it uh, a particular uh, approach? What, what inspired you at that moment?
1: I think my, my main spiritual influence over the last 25 years has been Thomas Thomas Merton and I knew that Merton had written a great deal about uh, about war uh, and about uh, about against nuclear weapons and against war in general I knew that he'd written so much that at one point his order silenced him from writing anymore so my first step was to go back to Merton and start to read pretty well everything he'd written but it went beyond essays he wrote some very very profound essays but he also wrote freedom songs and he wrote, wrote poems. And he held a, uh, he held a uh, retreat for a number of peace activists in the States in 1964. Uh, and most of the people that attended that ended up in jail for their activism afterwards. And it just started to make me reshape my thinking and start to think about how can we bring people together who feel they don't have a, they don't have a voice. And what do we need to help people to rethink this? And certainly the elections in the States a few years ago and the elections we've had here recently, I think led me to to realize that logical, rational argument isn't the only way of speaking to somebody. You have to speak to the whole person and that's what Merton did with poetry and with, with music and with essays and with visual art as well. Uh, so I I wanted to find some way of being able to speak to the whole person and give people resources to be able to speak up for peace.
0: I know here at the Henry Nowen Society, uh, we were certainly aware that uh, it was something that Henry was very interested in and, and that many of his students were interested in, and he really supported their activism. Uh, people like John Deere, I mean, he was writing to him in prison. And he was... He was doing everything he could to support them as they were doing what they could. Uh, But it's funny, I know for myself, I kind of thought of peace activism being the 60s, the 70s, maybe the 80s, but that maybe we had gone beyond that and maybe there wasn't any really, any big need to be concerned about nuclear weapons or, you know, the various issues that had caught their imagination at that time. But things are changing, and there is a sense of great vulnerability Mm -hmm. in the world all the time. And it's interesting to gather again and start to talk about the issues of peace, Mm -hmm. and what part will Christians play in that? What's your thoughts on that? What what do you feel you find scripturally, or what do you find in Merton that tells you you've got to take a stand in this way?
1: Merton speaks about the insanity of war. Uh, He talks about the twisted circular logic of war. He quotes a Vietnamese, or sorry, a a USA uh, lieutenant uh, talking about Vietnam who said we had to destroy the village in order to free the village. That sort of thinking is a sort of thinking that drives militarism in the world. That and the financial opportunity to make money. So we have people who are selling weapons to both sides of a conflict, so it's there's a so there's a there's a moral issue. There's an issue of of destruction, uh, destruction of towns like Aleppo, uh, destruction of of the environment. If you look at, if you look at a couple of A.Y. Jackson's paintings that he did in France in the war, he shows a landscape that's just totally ripped apart. And if you compare that to the work that he did of Ontario landscapes with the beauty and the water and the color, it just presents such a devastatingly awful, awful picture of the environmental effects of war. So I think, like Pope Francis said in Laudato Si, all of these things are interrelated. And we can't address war without addressing economics, and we can't address economics without talking about poverty, uh, about nationalism, about race. It becomes very, very complex. But it's something that I think the gospel is able to speak into very profoundly with a hope for peace, a hope for the unity of humanity, a hope for being able to transcend or overcome our our barriers and our divisions. Uh, Saint Paul speaks so profoundly about that in uh, in Colossians, and the writer of Ephesians the same. Um, it's all through, and then we have also in in um, interesting images out of Isaiah, for example, of taking. The, the future being taking weapons of war and beating them into implements for agriculture.
0: Well, it's, it's been a real privilege to team up with you the Henry Nowen Society, uh, you, uh, the Church of the Redeemer, and uh, your Thomas Merton. Expertise, and also with the Basilians, Father Bob Holmes, and uh, uh, the Basilians' vision for peace. And uh, it, it's been a very exciting uh, time to come together yeah. in this in this project. Um, tell me a little bit about what was the vision for this recent w- uh, Voices for Peace. Let's hear a little bit about what where that came from, and some of the things that you brought to it in terms of the arts.
1: I think the vision was to get stories from people who are on the front lines, to make things concrete, just like Morgan Rose's concrete coming into the world changed my thinking or motivated me, that these profound stories from people like Kathy Kelly, who was willing to go to Iraq and to uh, Afghanistan and to Gaza and be right there where the action was or right there where people are being displaced, disenfranchised, uh, their lives torn apart, and be there and be a voice for peace. Uh, Father Bob Holmes, wonderful, wonderful stories of being able to find a way of taking Israeli and Palestinian people who really didn't know each other and would have hated each other because of the losses their families had suffered and bring them together to a place of conversation and understanding and mutual respect and forgiveness there's so um the stories are so profound, but I think also uh from an artistic point of view that well we can the story i mean narration is uh, certainly an art in itself, but there are poets, there are songwriters, there are visual artists who have tried to provide images, metaphors, speak to our imagination and hearts. To draw us forward into this vision of of hopefulness and of and of peace, um, uh, Bruce Coburn, uh, Shad, John Brooks, uh, Digging Roots—all four Canadian uh, bands or, or or individuals who have been able to find a way of expressing that that longing for human wholeness, uh, that willing to willingness to turn. Um, swords in the plowshares, uh, that need for human unity. They've been able to express that artistically. And when you can carry that in your heart, it um, it starts to change the way you think.
0: I loved the way you wove through the day a Merton poem. Uh, Jean Buba did an absolutely gorgeous job of reading it. It was just breathtaking. Uh, and then, in a sense, that's where you took us at the end of the day. Maybe tell me just a little bit about... Um, what you why that was in your heart to do what was that about
1: i think it's the possibility of offering a different vision and what merton does and he does many things in that poem it's called Hagia sophia which means holy wisdom and he plays with the image of uh, from proverbs and from the uh, wisdom of solomon of of wisdom playing in creation, wisdom being at the heart uh, at the heart of the divine, and he plays with that image in in a, multiple ways, giving it different different shapes, different voices, and but in doing so, draws us towards a sense of a sense of mercy, a sense of wholeness, a sense of human connectedness, in a way that's just sort of teases you and won't let you go, draws you forward. But it's also rooted in the concrete. It's rooted in the experience of a nurse waking a patient up in the hospital. Somehow wisdom, love, mercy, the divine are revealed in that very simple human action. It's rooted in the incarnation where we have Jesus as a refugee But he speaks in terms, in current terms, of a homeless refugee, without papers, lying down and going to sleep in the middle of the desert. Uh, So it's 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 very very current. It's very very human, but it it makes us see things. It shifts our vision. It shifts our vision, so we don't use the same old metaphors. We don't use the same type of words. We we're not arguing. We're Playing, teasing, getting down at deeper levels, speaking at a different level.
0: Paul, I, I, I'd like to use that as uh, our moment now to go into Gene uh, Buba uh, reading Hagia Sophia and then. Into your talk, I think this gives people who are listening a wonderful background to, to uh, where this was intended to go. I know you'll enjoy it. I encourage you to listen on, and I also want you to be aware that all the Voices for Peace sessions are on our website, and you can enjoy any one of them. Uh, We'll encourage you to go back and hear Kathy Kelly, and definitely to hear Father Bob Holmes. But let's go right now and listen to Jean Buba, and then go into Paul Pinkowski's talk. Dawn, The Hour of Lods.
2: There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness, This mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom, the mother of all, natura naturans. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fount of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness, and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all created being, welcoming me tenderly, saluting me with indescribable humility. This is at once my own being, my own nature, and the gift of my creator's thought and art within me, speaking as Hagia Sophia, speaking as my sister, wisdom. I am awakened. I am born again at the voice of this my sister, sent to me from the depths of divine fecundity. Let us suppose I am a man lying asleep in a hospital. I am indeed this man lying asleep, It is July the 2nd, the feast of Our Lady's visitation, a feast of wisdom. At 5.30 in the morning, I am dreaming in a very quiet room when a soft voice awakens me from my dream. I am like all mankind, awakening from all the dreams that ever were dreamed in all the nights of the world. It is like the one Christ awakening in all the separate selves that ever were separate and isolated and alone in all the lands of the earth. It is like all minds coming back together into awareness from all distractions, cross-purposes and confusions into the unity of love. It is like the first morning of the world when Adam, at the sweet voice of wisdom, awoke from non-entity and knew her. And like the last morning of the world, when all the fragments of Adam will return from death at the voice of Hagia Sophia and will know where they stand. Such is the awakening of one man, one morning, at the voice of a nurse in the hospital. Awakening out of languor and darkness, out of helplessness, out of sleep. Newly confronting reality and finding it to be gentleness. It is like being awakened by Eve. It is like being awakened by the Blessed Virgin. It is like coming forth from primordial nothingness and standing in clarity, in paradise. In the cool hand of the nurse, there is the touch of all life, the touch of spirit. Thus wisdom cries out to all who will hear sapientia clamitat in plateus, and she cries out particularly to the little, to the ignorant, and the helpless. Who is more little? Who is more poor than the helpless man who lies asleep in his bed without awareness and without defense? Who is more trusting than he who must entrust himself each night to sleep? What is the reward of trust? Gentleness comes to him when he is most helpless and awakens him, refreshed, beginning to be made whole. Love takes him by the hand and opens to him the doors of another day, another life. But he who has defended himself fought for himself in sickness, planned for himself, guarded himself, loved himself alone, and watched over his own life all night, is killed at last by exhaustion. For him, there is no newness. Everything is stale and old. When the helpless one awakens strong at the voice of mercy, it is as if life his sister, as if the blessed virgin, his own flesh, his own sister, as if nature made wise by God's art and incarnation were to stand over him and Invite him with unutterable sweetness to be awake and to live. This is what it means to recognize Haya Sophia, O blessed silent one who speaks everywhere. We do not hear the soft voice, the gentle voice merciful and feminine. We do not hear mercy, or yielding love, or non-resistance, or non-reprisal. In her, there are no reasons and no answers. Yet, she is the candor of God's light the expression of his simplicity. We do not hear the uncomplaining pardon that bows down the innocent visages of flowers to the dewy earth. We do not see the child who is prisoner in all all the people and who says nothing. She smiles, for though they have bound her, she cannot be a prisoner. Not that she is strong or clever, but simply that she does not understand imprisonment. The helpless one, abandoned to sweet sleep, him, the gentle one, will awake. Sophia. All that is sweet in her tenderness will speak to him on all sides in everything without ceasing. And he will never be the same again. He will have awakened not to conquest or dark pleasure, but to the impeccable, pure simplicity of one consciousness in all and through all. One wisdom, one child, one meaning, one sister. The stars rejoice in their setting and in the rising of the sun. The heavenly lights rejoice in the going forth of one man to make a new world in the morning. Because he has come out of the confused primordial dark night into consciousness. He has expressed the clear silence of Sophia in his own heart. He has become eternal. High morning, the hour of terse. The sun burns in the sky like the face of God But we do not know his countenance is terrible. His light is diffused in the air. And the light of God is diffused by Hagia Sophia. We do not see the blinding one in black darkness, black emptiness. He speaks to us gently in 10,000 things in which his light is one fullness and one wisdom. Thus, he shines not on them, but from within them. Such is the loving kindness of wisdom. All the perfections of created things are also in God. And therefore, he is at once father and mother. As father, he stands in solitary might, surrounded by darkness. As mother, his shining is diffused, embracing all his creatures with merciful tenderness and light. The diffuse shining of God is Haya Sophia. We call her his glory. In Sophia, his power is experienced only as mercy and as love. When the recluses of 14th century England heard their church bells, And looked out upon the wolds and fens under a kind sky. They spoke in their hearts to Jesus, our mother. It was Sophia that had awakened in their childlike hearts. Perhaps in a certain very primitive aspect, Sophia is the unknown, the dark, the nameless Osea. Perhaps she is even the divine nature, one in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And perhaps she is in infinite light manifest, not even waiting to be known as light, This I do not know. Out of the silence, light is spoken. We do not hear it or see it until it is spoken. In the nameless beginning, without beginning, was the light. We have not seen this beginning. I do not know where she is in this beginning. I do not speak of her as a beginning, but as a manifestation. Now the wisdom of God comes forth, reaching from end to end mightily. She wills to be also. The unseen pivot of all nature, the center and significance of all the light that is in all and for all. That which is poorest and humblest, that which is most hidden in all things, is nevertheless most obvious in them and quite manifest. For it is their own self that stands before us, naked and without care. Sophia, the feminine child, is playing in the world, obvious and unseen. Playing at all times before the Creator. Her delights are to be with the children of men. She is their sister. The core of life that exists in all things is tenderness, mercy, virginity, the light. The life considered as passive, as received, as given, as taken, as inexhaustibly renewed by the gift of God. Sophia is gift, is spirit. donum Dei. She is God-given and God himself as gift. God as all and God reduced to nothing, inexhaustible nothingness, ex in anivit semet ipsum, humility as the source of unfailing light. Haya Sophia in all things is the divine life reflected in them considered as a spontaneous participation, as their invitation to the wedding feast. Sophia is God's sharing of himself with creatures, his outpouring and the love by which he is given and known, held and loved. She is in all things like the air receiving the sunlight. In her they prosper. In her they glorify God. In her they rejoice to reflect him. In her they are united with him. She is the union between them. She is the love that unites them. She is life as communion, life as thanksgiving, life as praise, life as festival, life as glory, because she receives perfectly. There is in her no stain. She is love without blemish, and gratitude without self-complacency. All things praise her by being themselves and by sharing in the wedding feast. She is the bride and the feast and the wedding. The feminine principle in the world is the inexhaustible source of creative realizations of the Father's glory. She is his manifestation in radiant splendor, but she remains unseen, glimpsed only by a few. Sometimes there are none who know her at all, Sophia is the mercy of God in us. She is the tenderness by which the infinitely mysterious power of pardon turns the darkness of our sins into the light of grace. She is the inexhaustible fountain of kindness and would almost seem to be in herself all mercy. So she does in us a greater work than that of creation, the work of new being in grace, the work of pardon. The work of transformation from brightness to brightness, tamquam ad domini spiritu. She is in us, the yielding and tender counterpart to the power, justice, and creative dynamism of the Father. Sunset. The Hour of Compline. Salve Regina. Now, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the one created being who enacts and shows forth in her life all that is hidden in Sophia. Because of this, She can be said to be a personal manifestation of Sophia, who, in God, is usia rather than person. Natura in Mary becomes pure mother. In her, Natura is as she was from the origin, from her divine birth. In Mary, Natura is all-wise and is manifested as an all-prudent, all-loving, all-pure person. Not a creator and not a redeemer, but perfect creature, perfectly redeemed, the fruit of all God's great power, the perfect expression of wisdom in mercy. It is she, it is Mary, Sophia, who in sadness and joy with the full awareness of what she is doing, sets upon the second person, the logos, a crown which is his human nature. Thus, her consent opens the door of created nature, of time, of history, to the word of God. God enters into creation through her wise answer, through her obedient understanding, through the sweet, yielding consent of Sophia. God enters without publicity into the city of rapacious men. She crowns him, not with what is glorious, but with what is greater than glory. The one thing greater than glory is weakness, nothingness. Poverty. She sends the infinitely rich and power one forth as poor and helpless in his mission of inexpressible mercy to die for us on the cross. The shadows fall, the stars appear, the birds begin to sleep. Night embraces the silent half of the earth. A vagrant, a destitute wanderer with dusty feet, finds his way down a new road. A homeless God, lost in the night, without papers, without identification, without even a number, a frail, expendable exile, lies down in desolation under the sweet stars of the world, and entrusts himself to sleep.
1: Thomas Merton, the contemplative Trappist monk and poet, was monitored by the CIA. Records on file in the Merton archives at Bellarmine University include evidence that a letter from Merton to Russian author Boris Pasternak was opened and read by the CIA before it was sent to Russia. The presence of Merton's name on a petition against the Vietnam War was also noted in the CIA records. Bruce Coburn notes in his memoir that shortly after the 1973 coup in Chile, songwriter Victor Jara and other artists were arrested and imprisoned under suspicion of being disloyal to the state. It is worthwhile to stop and ask why artists, songwriters, and poets are monitored, imprisoned, and silenced by governments and oppressive regimes. So let's explore this just a little bit. Sylvia Kiesmat and Brian Walsh, in their books Colossians Remixed, took a poem of St. Paul's in the first letter of Colossians, the one where Christ, not Caesar, is identified as the image of the divine and where the peace of the cross is appealed to rather than the Pax Romana. They offer, this poem is nothing less than treasonous. In the space of a short, well-crafted, three stanza poem, Paul subverts every major claim of the empire, turning them on their heads, and proclaims Christ to be the Creator, Redeemer, and Lord of all creation, including the empire. Paul's goal is providing alternative images of a subversive imagination. They go on to say the primary goal of Christian proclamation is to empower the community to reimagine the world as if Christ and not the powers were sovereign. Radical Christian proclamation and cultural practice will seek to demythologize the empire. Such proclamation, such poetry, will always be a subversion of the dominant version of reality." Merton, writing in 1962, offers, It is frightening to realize that the facade of Christianity, which still generally survives, was perhaps little or with perhaps little or nothing behind it, and that we once called Christian society, is little more than a materialistic neo-paganism with a Christian veneer. And where the Christian veneer has been stripped away, we see laid bare the awful vacuity of the mass mind, without morality, without identity, without compassion, without sense rapidly reverting to tribalism and superstition. Here, spiritual religion has yielded to the tribal totalitarian war dance and to the idolatrous cult of the machine." True when he wrote it in 1962 during the Cold War, even more so now, underscoring the need for revitalizing of our imaginations. Elsewhere, Merton made these comments, there is no revolution without a voice The more the cry of the oppressed is ignored, the more it strengthens itself with a mysterious power that is to be gained from myth, symbol, and prophecy. There is no revolution without poets who are also seers. There is no revolution without prophetic songs. Myth, symbol, image, and song conspire together to challenge our imagination individually and collectively and open the door to see the world differently than those in power good reason, then, for those who have power to be wary of the artist. Peacemaking, and I think we've heard this today several times, is a vocation of resistance. In advocating for peace, we are not merely asking for people to get along a little better. Rather, we are engaged in acts of resistance against a culture where violence is the norm. Not just the violence of war, but the violence inflicted on people by every social framework that diminishes others racism, poverty, unjust economic and and social structures, and the demeaning of persons due to gender and sexual orientation. The vocation of peacemaking requires imagining living in a manner that allows for mercy, compassion, and forgiveness to be the dominant themes of a new way of being in relationship, not just among the like-minded, but also with those who are not like ourselves, those who may even be viewed as enemies. This is unsettling to those who hold power. If you have any doubts, take a moment to recall that last year's keynote speaker Jim Forrest was arrested and jailed for civil disobedience protesting the war in Vietnam. So too were Dorothy Day and Daniel Berrigan. Berrigan, a Jesuit priest who had never never owned a gun, never committed an act of violence, was at one time the most wanted man in the United States of America. Kathy Kelly and Bob Holmes, who spoke to us earlier, have both been arrested and jailed for acting for peace. It's legal to go and kill and blow things up, Mm, planting corn not so much. (laughs) Dee Dee was in constant jeopardy because she was committed to act out of compassion. Our calling is to live into the vision of the kingdom of God and to work out a new politics of compassion but it is a province of the poet, songwriter, and artist to provide an an imaginative framework that assists both our conversion and our efforts to get there. But finding new ways to see is not just the province of artists. In the opening pages of New Seeds of Contemplation, Merton draws a link between poetry and contemplation. Contemplation, he writes, is the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life, It is that life itself fully active, fully aware, that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is a more profound depth of faith, a knowledge too deep to be grasped in images, in words, or even in clear concepts. It can be suggested by words, by symbols. Poetry, music, and art have something in common with a contemplative experience. In a later chapter, he offers, This particular tree will give glory to God by spreading out its roots in the earth and raising its branches into the air and the light in a way that no other tree, before or after it, ever did or will do. This special clumsy beauty of this particular colt on this April day, in this field, under these clouds, is a holiness consecrated to God by His own creative wisdom, and it declares the glory of God. Contemplative practice, as it moves us towards the loving ground of all that is, simultaneously plunges us back into the realm of particularity. But with the gift of seeing, hearing, and engaging the particular with a new sense of vision, it calls us to pay attention. Poetry, and I would include here the writing of songs and visual art, is also about paying attention, engaging with the particular. Andrew Rumsey writes, Viewing the large in the small is the currency of poetry, for it is the grasp of significant detail that brings a poem alive. Poets are driven, albeit in many different ways, by the desire to really see what is before them, to attend to particulars and all their uniqueness and diversity. The poet's first response to the world is stillness and wonder, passive reflection before active exposition. Poetry takes in before it gives out and considers itself addressed by creation called to attention. Thomas Merton is best known for his essays, but he was a poet, a photographer, and a visual artist, and he knew that the work of peace demanded more than the logic of rational writing. He knew, as St. Paul, that peacemaking required the breaking open of our imaginations to see the world in a way that is radically different from what is offered to us in the midst of our culture. Some of its most powerful work comes to us via his poetry. Hagia Sophia, original child bomb, chant for processions around a site with furnaces, earthquake. The publication of his book Raids on the Unspeakable included one of his abstract calligraphies at the beginning of each chapter. And the poem Original Child Bomb, when it was published, included abstract ink blots, one of which had the appearance of the mushroom cloud that arose over Hiroshima. Merton continually asks whether we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Can we discern what is hidden in plain sight? As poet and contemplative, he calls us to pay attention. His approach, in essence, is incarnational. He asks plainly in letters to a white liberal, how then do we treat this other Christ who happens to be black? For Merton, this question of how we treat the other Christ is at the heart of every encounter with someone we perceive as opponent, other, and enemy. Every act of dialogue, every attempt to build a bridge across our perceived divides is preceded by this question. Thomas Merton can be a trustworthy guide as we navigate the geography of peacemaking. For the rest of our time, though, I want to attempt to bring his voice into play with more contemporary poets and songwriters as we explore some of those areas that demand our attention and challenge us as Christians to see, hear, and imagine. So we've already heard today from Father Bob and and Dee's discussion that really it starts in our own hearts. And it may seem, so we're going to explore this first. It may seem counterintuitive, though, but we'll begin by our exploration by listening to a song that appears to advocate the use of violence. (music)
3: Second time today, everybody scatters and hopes it goes away. How many kids they've murdered, only
4: God can say.
1: If I had a rocket launcher, I'd make somebody pay. I would retaliate. I want to raise every voice, at least I've got to try. Every time I think about it, water rises to my eyes. Situation desperate. Echoes of the victim's cries. If I had a rocket launcher, some son of a bitch would die. It's 1983. Bruce Coburn, a young Canadian songwriter, is at the Mexican Guatemala border at the request of Oxfam. He's visiting a refugee camp inhabited by several thousand Guatemalans who'd fled the violence of civil war. If I Had a Rocket Launcher, emerged from that experience. He writes this about his time in Mexico 3,000 inhabitants, mostly women and children, carried themselves with grace and dignity, though they were clearly desperate. That was the most moving part of being there, to see the suffering and to see the strength in the face of that suffering, of the constant threats, of the immense and brutal theft of life and security. The Guatemalan military wasn't content to simply torture and slaughter and destroy villages where they were. They continued to harass the survivors crossing the border into Mexico and attacking the refugee camps, strafing from helicopters, now and then dragging people off into the jungle. Hearing their stories and seeing their suffering, He says he experienced intense waves of emotion, alternately dark and light. I was in awe, appalled, incensed. He went back to his sparse hotel room and, through tears and a bottle of scotch, wrote that song. Rocket Launcher is not about advocating violence. Rather, it speaks to the concrete suffering of people who are on the margins, people who would normally remain hidden behind the headlines as statistics. Coburn is at his most vulnerable here, as he describes the geography of his own heart and the fact that he found there the same rage, fear, and murderous tendencies he despised in the Guatemalan soldiers. Coburn's songwriting takes us right into the heart of Merton's writing on nonviolence, witnessing to what Merton sketched for us in The Root of War is Fear. He writes that the root of all war is fear, not so much the fear, of men, fear men have of one another, is the fear they have of everything. It is not only our hatred of our others that is dangerous, but also, and above all else, the hatred of ourselves, particularly the hatred of ourselves, which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced, for it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. We waste all our mental energy trying to account for this evil, to exercise it, or to get rid of it in any way we can. We drive ourselves mad with our preoccupation, and in the end there is no outlet left but violence. Each of our speakers today has spoken to this fear. Merton, in the same essay, urges us to move beyond the simple binaries of right and wrong, good and evil. He writes, we need to accept ourselves and our mysterious, unaccountable mixture of good and evil. We have to recognize that we have willfully or otherwise trespassed on the rights of others. We must be able to admit this when it is pointed out unexpectedly, and perhaps not too gently, by somebody else. And he insists only love, which means humility, can exercise a fear which is at the root of war. Merton also takes aim at the military-industrial complex, contrasting the massive amounts of money spent on weapons with a four-cent stamp in the United States, carrying the words, pray for peace. It's probably a dollar stamp now. But he's not willing to stop with the criticism there. The whole of Western business and consumerism come under fire for a superficial and self-serving understanding of peace. He sees the interconnectedness of war, commerce, consumer greed, and inequality. He writes: "To some men, peace merely means the liberty to exploit other people without fear or interference. To others, peace means the freedom to rob brothers without interruption." To others still it means the leisure to devour the earth's goods without being compelled to interrupt their pleasures to feed those whom their greed is starving. Their idea of peace was only another form of war. The Cold War is simply the normal consequence of our corruption of peace based on a policy of every man for himself in ethics, economics, and political life. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself not in another. What is most noteworthy here, at least to me, is that this essay, The Root of War of Fear, appears in Merton's seminal work on the contemplative life, New Seeds of Contemplation. Here in this critique is concrete evidence that poetic and contemplative vision can open the imagination and lead to resistance to the established order. We see the essential unity of contemplative vision and action for justice. Coburn in another song, we're not going to play this one, but Coburn in another song echoes some of Merton Seams in his song Call Call It Democracy from 1985. He sings of international loan sharks backed by guns, whose brow is smeared with the blood of the poor, turning labor camps, turning countries into labor camps, modern slavers in drag as champions of freedom. One day you're going to rise from your habitual feast and find yourself staring down the throat of the beast they call the revolution. Coburn, as prophet and poet, captures the fact that the violence of oppression fuels the violence of revolution, simultaneously pointing to the illusion of the market, modern slaves in drag as champions of freedom, and alluding to terrifying apocalyptic images staring down the throat of the beast. It is a world where tyranny has been deified and the gun has become a sacrament. Does the sacramental symbol of a gun not make us, as people of faith, extremely uncomfortable? The official music video for the song, although certainly dated, still has a visceral impact. Scenes of bombs dropping slowly from an airplane. A map of South America is plunged into an old meat grinder while a bottle of Coca-Cola is pushed out the back end. And the salute of a fascist third world army is placed alongside the falling balloons that signal the successful selection of a new North American political leader. Over the top of the final images, Coburn's guitar plays a long, heart-rending lament, the only appropriate response to what has been seen and sung. The rocket launcher Coburn would have taken into his own hands is recognized as a sacrament of corporate and political violence. It is a dark place to be. But his offering of these images is a necessary form of truth-telling that might motivate us to imagine a better way. For Merton and Coburn, our starting point—and for Bob Holmes talking today as well—our starting point for reflection, for paying attention, is to navigate the geography of violence and greed in our hearts. Recognizing violence there and confronting it in humility and repentance opens the door for us to engage more effectively the violence in our culture. It means being able to hold in tension the complexity of both our personal situation and the situation within our social constructs. It means acknowledging both good and evil, oppressor and oppressed, in each of us, eliminating the distance between ourselves and those we perceive as enemies. But neither acknowledgment of our shortcomings nor bearing witness to our collective violence is sufficient. We will remain in an impasse until we can transcend the illusory divisions we create and acknowledge the humanity of those we call enemies. Another thing we need to pay attention to is the weight and value of words. Bruce Coburn's song, Maybe the Poet, from Stealing Fire in 1984, contrasts the deceptive idolatry of our social political reality. He writes, don't let the system fool you. All it wants to do is rule you. with the prophetic role of the poet Pay attention to the poet. You need him and you know it. You need him to show you new ways to see. The existing order may try to silence or destroy the poet. From the song, he writes, shoot him up with lead. You won't call back what's been said. Put him in the ground. But one day, you'll look around. There'll be a face you don't know, voicing thoughts you've heard before. The poet won't be silenced. The words of the poet, once uttered, have their impact. The impact results from the poet's ability to pay attention to what is seen and experienced and to use language to express it. It requires that language be taken seriously as a vehicle for expressing the truth. Conversely, the poet's careful use of language should alert us to interrogate the other messages we are hearing. This is particularly true if we're advocates for peace. Merton, in the essay, War and the Crisis of Language, laments the sickness of language and that ordinary modes of communication have broken down into banality and deception. Violence has gradually come to take the place of other, more polite communications. Here, Burton, as poet with a sarcastic edge in his voice, examines the language of a perfume advertisement and the language of war. He offers, poets are the ones who, at the present moment, are most sensitive to the sickness of language. It is a vocation of the poet or the anti-poet Not to be deaf to such things, but to apply his ear intently. Of the perfume ad, there's a new hairspray, as delicate as airspray. Your hair takes on a shimmer and sheen that's wonderfully young. You seem to spray new life and bounce right into it, and a coif of arpege has one more thing no other spray has. It has arpege. (laughs) (laughs) He writes, Reason is reduced to silence. Here again we have an example of speech that is at once totally trivial and totally definitive. We no longer wonder that theologians are tearing their hair and crying that God is dead when every smell, every taste, every hissing breakfast food is endowed with the transcendental properties of being. Pointing out the twisted logic of military language, he quotes a U.S. major who describes the need—and the quote is—regardless of human casualties to rout the Viet Cong. The major comments, "...it became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it." It became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it. Merton rages in conjectures of a guilty bystander about letters between the commander of a Nazi concentration camp and its equipment suppliers. He quotes letters from German businesses promising the commander of Auschwitz, higher levels of efficiency with perfected cremation ovens, offering we guarantee their effectiveness as well as their durability. He quotes Himmler on the final solution, saying, this is a page of glory in our history which has never been written. The poet responds, pardon, Herr General, I cannot refrain from writing it. Chant to be used in a procession around a site with furnaces dares to write that page of glory in our history. In language that is as absur- absurd as it is chilling, Merton takes phrases from the trial testimony of the Auschwitz commander, along with excerpts from the letters he quotes and conjectures and situates them in language the reader knows full well is meant to obscure. The title suggests liturgy, and the poem is constructed much like psalmody or chant, most selections being only two or three short lines. It starts, how we made them sleep and purified them, how we perfectly cleaned up the people and worked a big heater. I purified, and I remained decent. How I commanded, I made cleaning appointments, and then I made the travelers sleep, and after that, I made soap. When trains arrived, the soiled passengers received appointments for fun in the bathroom. They did not guess. It was a very big bathroom for 2,000 people. It awaited arrival, and they arrived safely. There would be an orchestra of merry widows. Not all the time, much art. Terms like purification, bathing, play, love, fragrance, and happiness are placed along phrases that obscurely point to death, cremation, and the turning of human remains into soap. Efficiency and obedience are celebrated by the commander, As I read and reread chants, I experience anger and horror at the Nazis and at the way language was used to obscure genocide and create a liturgy celebrating death. This poem is constructed to focus our attention on the Nazi atrocities. But Merton, again, doesn't stop there. The power of this liturgy is that it conspires to trap the reader. As the commander makes his final statement, all the while I obeyed perfectly, he offers You may smile at my career, but you would do as I did if you knew yourself and dared. In my day, we worked hard. We saw what we did. Our response is, no, not me. I wouldn't do that. But we're all caught in the last chant. Do not think yourself better because you burn up friends and enemies with long-range missiles without ever seeing what you have done. The commander's willingness to celebrate his obedience and efficiency is contrasted with our refusal to see anything at all—our ability to anesthetize ourselves from the death and destruction that is part of our society's economy. We recognize ourselves as guilty bystanders. Merton, in a single poem, uses a figure, figure of the commander to simultaneously warn us of the dangers of propaganda and to push us to examine our own complicity, complicity in the violence around us. Canadian hip-hop artist Shad accomplished something similar in a more contemporary key. Shad awoke from sleep with images from a dream of a desert still in his mind. They were disturbing enough that he did not let them go, choosing instead to reflect on them, interrogate them, until he understood the meaning of both the desert landscape and the characters he saw. The result is a short story of war, recorded just prior to his address at last year's conference and released this past September. It is an album that forces the listener to pay attention, alternating between a wall of electronic sound and cool jazz stylings, the cries of an army and the soft voices of children, clever rapid-fire wordplay and quiet narrative. He masterfully connects through image and word war, the dynamics of business, and the conflict in our hearts and relationships. The barrenness of the desert is set against images of water, the solitary individual contrasted with the person, in loving relationship. We're going to hear a song from the album, Revolution, The Establishment.
3: They snakes, we, <coughs> ate we, we ate war. We ate war.
5: there's order. We just follow orders. We just fill orders for more ballistics, munitions, equipment, permissions, provisions. We just design defense systems and ship them on time. Listen, my job is complying with city bylaws and minimizing innocent lives lost for my bosses, both at home and abroad. For instance, drones with a bomb can resolve conflicts all while limiting high costs. So why not? Why not? All businesses strive to expand. Wars just provide us a chance to supply and demand. Our stance is we make instruments. We don't create incidents or instigate. We're innocent, you're insolent. Listen, we don't make war. We all make our decisions. We all gotta make a living and you make yours. And our position is we don't make war. We may create conditions conducive, create divisions, but prove it. We make moves, but we don't make war. We don't endorse or advocate using force. In fact, our lawyers make sure technically we don't make war. They place orders, we fill them. They break borders, we kill them. We're not villains, they're not civilians. We don't make war. It existed before. And why would I or anybody try to make more? For shame, we're not to blame for the slain, the flames, the poor, the games, the gains. We we all have to deal. We make deals, but we don't make war. We're real, we're realistic, no feels. We talk statistics, specifics. We're not mystics. You should pray more. We're religious, we're not malicious or vicious, we're not sadistic. Yo, listen, don't get it twisted. Of course, we don't make war. We don't make, we don't make war.
1: Make it's not Mozart, but man, he's effective. Shed takes aim at the double speak of war and the duping of the public through the propaganda of business. The loud voices in the first section are the voices of revolutionaries. They shout out the sins of their oppressive rulers, making accusations of violence. Yet, they are calling for violence. Both sides advocate violence as a means of power. And as the noise of their cries die away, we hear another voice, careful and calm. It is a purveyor of weapons selling to both sides and deflecting criticisms back on those who protest. We don't make war. We make sure there's order. We just follow orders. We just fill orders. My job is complying with city bylaws and minimizing innocent lives lost. Our stance is, we make instruments. We don't create incidents. You're insolent. We're not mystics. You should pray more. We're religious. We're not malicious or vicious. We're not sadistic. Listen, don't get it twisted, of course. We don't make war. Phrases like, we don't make war, are repeated perhaps enough times to make it believable. Social order, following orders, and filling orders are collapsed, forming a single concept. We become become the accused for not praying enough and are told, don't get it twisted, the very statement itself twisting and obscuring the reality of the violence. Propaganda's half-truths and double-talk too often convince us. The work of these three poets alerts us to look beneath the surface of what is being said in support of the status quo of violence. They push us to reflect more deeply on Christ's call to be peacemakers and to find words and images capable of expressing that reality. So where do we go then to imagine a better future? Jim Forrest, in his address last year, noted that none of us are fully peacemakers. We are journeying towards peace, towards being among the ones called Blessed in the Beatitudes. We've looked with help from Coburn and Merton at the need to interrogate our own hearts, we have considered with Merton, Coburn, and Shad the importance of language, language that obscures the truth, and the work of poets and artists in bearing witness to the truth. Both of these projects require our attentiveness and our engagement. But we need also for the poet to assist us with images, myths, and metaphors that help us to both grasp and live into a new reality if we are to resist the violence of our culture. We were privileged to have Jean Buba lead us through Merton's poem, Haya Sophia, over the course of the day. Meditating on poems like that ourselves would be part of the work of developing contemplative vision. First, Haya Sophia is structured around the daily prayer offices. And this should signal to us the importance of prayer for Merton and the need, as Merton suggests, to use prayer as a weapon against the weapons of violence and war with deliberate aim. See how he takes ownership and turns the metaphor on its head. Second, Merton dares us to imagine the wisdom at the heart of creation. Wisdom is tenderness, love, and mercy. Wisdom invites us with an unutterable sweetness to be awake and to live. We are not being called by a concept, but rather by a wisdom that comes alive to us in concrete circumstances, like that of a vulnerable man in a hospital bed being awakened by his nurse in the early morning. But listen. O blessed Silent One, who speaks everywhere! All that is sweet in her tenderness will speak to him on all sides in everything. It is not logic, but rather the paradox of the Silent One who speaks that opens the imagination. But while he describes the gentle beauty of this ever-present life-giving wisdom, Merton simultaneously laments, we do not hear, we do not hear, we do not see. Wisdom, then, is hidden in plain sight. Do we have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are we as peacemakers awake and attentive to wisdom's presence? Merton weaves images from the beginning of all things, light, sun, and a thousand creatures, calling our minds back to the very dawn of creation and then forward to a work greater than that of creation that is marked by grace, pardon, and transformation, pointing towards the power, justice, and creative dynamism of the one who holds us in love. Here lies our hope. The divine is named as both father and mother. He plays with the figure of Sophia, the feminine child playing in the world, yet the core of life that exists in all things. Is she wisdom from Proverbs? Perhaps she's Mary. He named her his, his sister. And perhaps she's a dynamic energy shared in the life of the Trinity. He plays similarly with the male figure. Is this Merton during one of his hospital confinements? Possibly but it is also Adam, Christ, in a homeless exile. We can be certain of only this—none of these are puzzles to be solved, but rather mysteries to be explored. In the final section, Merton draws our attention to the Incarnation. Our normal way of seeing is challenged as wisdom proclaims that weakness, nothingness, and poverty are greater than glory. In a mission of inexpressible mercy, everything is turned upside down as the rich and powerful one is sent forth as poor and helpless, and as light ebbs from the day and the final office is sung, we find a homeless God, lost in the night, without papers, without identification, without even a number. A frail, expendable exile lies down in desolation under the sweet stars and entrusts himself to sleep. Merton creatively combines images from both Testaments with images from everyday experience— to invite us to reimagine our world? Can we imagine, in the midst of the war and violence that produces millions of expendable exiles, a world of tenderness, mercy, and love? Can we embrace, like the little, the ignorant, and the helpless, a vulnerability that allows for our hearts to be awakened to trust in the mercy that calls us into unity and love? How might we experiment living that out? We could spend the whole day on that poem. But we're going to move on to John Brooks. There is no songwriter more able than John to tease out the necessary engagement to which we are called. John calls us to see compassionately through his eyes and through the experience of others. His most recent album, No One Travels Alone, challenges the listener to see the lies of a technology that claims to connect us, to grasp the suffering of the Earth, its creatures, and humanity. He rejects the traditional limiting debates about who is lost and who might be saved for the deeper question of how might we take care of one another. He finds in the seeds of little flowers lessons that teach us to love. He is able to help us look directly into the darkness and see hope, inviting us as listeners to accompany him with eyes open and gratitude in our hearts. He is a little-known poet who deserves a wider audience. That's my advertisement for John's latest album. We're actually going to hear a song from a previous album. Delicate cages. My name
4: is Mosa Hassan Yosef. Dad's dad wasn't I, ma'am. Dad was Shaker's son. I come from Ramallah. I'm the oldest son of Hamas. Now we can cage a people, we can cage a man. We cannot cage All oh, he understands There's a martyr waiting list Shahid, we have witness CNN, BBC Catch a glimpse of it Al Jazeera Tells a little bit I oh, can we hear a minute Deafening times, love, whisper the truth How can we hear amid deafening times Under fears, deafening lies Love, whisper the truth Now Wafa Idris, 28 years old was a paramedic recently divorced the bomb was in her backpack alexa clean the attack and the gun said this and the tank said that area sharon blamed yasser arafat how can we hear him in deafening time Whisper the truth. How can we hear amid deafening times under fears? Deafening. My neighbor most When thy neighbor is not too close Yes, yeah, some dance, some pose Some they win no bell Some still say love enemies Well, how can we hear amid Deafening times love Whisper the truth How can we hear a man? Deafening times under fears, deafening lies, love whisper them.
1: Brooks takes us to the heart of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that we've heard about already from Bob today. Here, Yusuf, whose grandfather was an man and father was a sheik, works as a spy, informing on his family and leading to his father's death. Later, a young woman, a paramedic and recent divorcee, offers herself as the first female suicide bomber. Around these stories, we hear the shouting voices of the political leaders offering blame underneath the noise of tanks and guns. Journalists choose to follow their own storylines, too, often complete, often incomplete. Brooks alludes to the biblical story, offering Riley that ever since Hagar and Sarah disagreed, only violence has been offered as a solution. Our, poets, our poet poses a question to us. Can we look past the political posturing, He takes us to the most violent of circumstances and asks, can we lean in under the din of the explosions and the noise of hate and hear love whispering the truth? And in asking the question, he offers both challenge and hope. For in making the challenge lies the intuition that even in circumstances of violence, betrayal, and hatred and loss of life, love is there somewhere below the noise. And if the voice of love and mercy is a mere whisper, then it will take an effort on our part to hear it. It means we need to be paying attention. If we can discern under the deafening noise of war and despite fears deafening lies the voice of love, then we have discovered the basis for hope, and with hope, the framework to imagine a world different from the one in which we now exist. And if we can, with the help of contemplatives and poets like Merton, Coburn, Chad, and Brooks, Imagine a better world, sisters and brothers. Then we will suddenly discover in ourselves, as individuals and in community, the freedom to resist and the freedom to act in creation of something better. Thanks.
0: If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up or even share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website and any content, resources, or books discussed in this episode. There's even a link to books to get you started in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nowen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.